All right. If you got your Bible, we are Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 12 is where we're going to go. We're going to read uh, 12 down through the end of the chapter. So if you have your Bible, uh, I'm going to read, and then we're going to jump right into it. So it goes like this. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, says this. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. They were all continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. The number of people who were together was about 120 and said, Brothers and sisters, it is necessary that the scripture be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell headfirst, his body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field has, is called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling become desolate, let no one live in it, and let someone else take his position. Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice and Matthias. Then they prayed, You, Lord, know everyone's hearts. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic ministry that Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, again that we have the opportunity to come and study your word. Lord, we're going to take a look today at, um, at what the apostles did be, uh, between the time that, that Jesus left and the time that the Holy Spirit arrived. In essence, we're taking a look at a business meeting. And I know that that sounds like there's not a lot of uh, application there, but Lord, open our hearts and open our minds to, to what you have because we know that the scripture is inspired by you and every word is profitable for us. Lord, help us to be different people as a result. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, so what we're going to do is we're, uh, we're looking at today called laying the groundwork. All right, we're at the end of the uh, Acts chapter 1. We're, we're looking at laying the groundwork. And like I said during my prayer, this is going to take place between the time that Jesus ascended, the time he left earth, we looked at that last week, and the time that the promise of the Holy Spirit was fulfilled. All right, so there was this about 10-day period where the apostles um, were together and they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to show up. Um, Jesus has ascended and his last instructions were the, to them were to wait in Jerusalem. All right, so what did they do? They waited in Jerusalem. Jesus told them to do it, so guess what they did? They went back and they waited in Jerusalem. Now I want to point something out. This really, it, it's kind of a fun fact more than anything. Um, if you remember, Luke is writing the, the book of Acts to a guy named Theophilus. And Theophilus was a convert, someone who became a Christian. And um, Luke was writing this to explain to him everything that happened, how the gospel ended up being spread all around the world. 
And so because Theophilus isn't from Jerusalem, Luke will, from time to time, he'll pepper little things into what he's writing to help them understand. And one of those we find at the end of verse 12. Let me read it to you. It says, um, They returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. All right, so what he's doing is he's setting up the, he's setting up the scene so that, they, that the, his readers know what's going on. Now, a Sabbath day's journey, that's kind of a foreign concept to us. Um, but if you remember back in the book of Exodus, that's what I'm reading in my devotions this, uh, this week or month, however long we're going to be in. It's 40 chapters. I'll be there for a while. Um, the, the children of Israel were wandering around the wilderness. They had left Egypt. They were about to go into the promised land. And they did something stupid. And so God said, you know what? Forget it. You're not going to the promised land. I'm going to kill every single one of you. You're going to wander around the desert for 40 years until all of you are dead. And then I'm going to take your children into the promised land. So while they were wandering around, from time to time, they would have to stop and set up camp. And they would put the tabernacle in the middle of the camp. So um, a Sabbath day's journey was the distance from the farthest uh, tent that was set up to the center of camp where the tabernacle was. Because if you remember, God told them they weren't allowed to do any work on the, on the Sabbath day. So the rabbis, of course, took that and like, oh, hey, look at this. All right. And they started adding all of these things to it. And they said, okay, so the farthest you can walk is about 2,000 cubits. It's about a half a mile. Okay, so that, that, that's why they did. I, I thought it was interesting. That's why I'm sharing it with you. Moving on. The disciples returned to Jerusalem like they were instructed by Jesus. And what did they do? They continued to come together, and they prayed together. And that's what they did. They came together, and they prayed together. All right? They weren't praying necessarily for anything in particular. They were missing Jesus because they had just spent three years with him, and this was the way that they communicated with him. Acts chapter 1, 13 and 14 tells us who was there. All right? And if you read through that list, I'm not going to read through it again, but all 11 of the remaining disciples were there, Peter, James, John, uh, Matthew, all of them, all of them were there. And this was a very different group than what we saw shortly after the crucifixion took place. Right after the crucifixion took place, all of them ran to the upper room, but you know what they did? They locked the door. They put chairs in front of the door. They put all the sofa in front of the door because they were afraid that their time was next. And if you remember, there was a story uh, where Jesus showed up to them in the middle of the room, and they're going, huh? Jesus is here. The couch is in front of the door. How did he get in the door? Right? Jesus was showing up to them. Now, this is a very different group because they're no longer locking the door. It tells us in Luke chapter 24, 52 and 53, it says this, After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. After spending that 40 days that we looked at, after spending that 40 days with Jesus, they were a completely different group of people. Now, they were the same individuals, but their attitude and everything had completely changed them. But I also want you to see who else is in that room. Acts chapter 1, verse 14 tells us that there were women there, including Mary, Jesus' mother, and his brothers. Now, that might not seem like a big deal. Like, oh, of course his mom's going to be. My mom's here, right? All right? That may not seem like a big deal, but here's the thing. All throughout Jesus' ministry, his brothers and his mom didn't believe him. 
They didn't believe. They thought he was crazy. There were there are parts in the scripture where they come and they come and try to get him and take him away because they think he's out of his mind. Um, but what we see, and as you continue on, his brothers James and Jude, they actually become leaders in the early church. James is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. He becomes the pastor of that church. He's also the one who wrote the book of James that we, we see later on in the Bible. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus showed up to James when he's, during all of his appearances. He showed up to James. And clearly, his appearing to James after the resurrection was enough to convince James to put his faith in Jesus. And what did James do? He went out and told the rest of his brothers, and guess what his brothers did? They put their faith in Jesus as well. And so when everyone's gathering together and praying, his brothers are there. He also had a brother named Jude. Jude was also a leader in the church, and he's the one who wrote the book of Jude as well. Um, and even though James, Jude, Mary, and the others were family to Jesus, they still needed to put their faith and trust in him. Just because they were his family did not give them special privileges. There are some religious traditions that hold Mary up as if she's some kind of goddess. That is, if she's, she's perfect and, and all of these things. But the reality of it is, Mary was a sinner just like everyone else. Mary was chosen by God. There was something unique and special about her, but she was still a sinner who needed to put her trust in Jesus. And just like everyone else, just like you and me, the only way that we get forgiveness of our sins is by putting our faith and trust in Jesus. Um, one final point about this, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it tells us that the church was continually united in prayer. They were continually united in prayer. Um, at this point, I don't think they fully understand what was about to take place. Right? They knew that God was gonna, or Jesus was going to send the Holy Spirit. Consequently, I'm on point number one in case he didn't. All right, I, I, we, we're talking about waiting on God's timing. I didn't, yeah, it's all right, no worries. All right, we're having a conversation between me and the video room. I'm gonna have problems with you and, okay, never mind. Some of y'all remember that, but um, okay, we're off, we're off topic. All right, they knew that they were supposed to wait for the Holy Spirit, but they had no idea what was going on. And so what they were doing is they were praying and they were waiting. And they were praying, and they were waiting. And they would come together, and they would pray. And what we see is as a result of them praying, when we get to chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit shows up, things are going to go gangbusters. And I fully, truly believe that none of what is going to happen in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and on until chapter 28 would have happened if the apostles and the other people had not gotten together in that upper room and prayed. What they did was they saw prayer was a priority. That prayer was the most important thing that they could do. And we as a church, like I, I talk a lot, I said, you know what? Let's do big things in our community. Let's do big things in our community. And I can tell you, we are never going to do big things in our community until we become a church that prays together. All right? And I'm not saying that we don't. We have time on Sunday night. But until we become a church that puts an absolute priority on prayer, not trying to do things in our own power, which I am guilty of doing. I am guilty of trying to rush ahead. 
until we wait on God and we pray about things, the big things that we want to do are going to be tiny in comparison to what God is going to do through us when we become a church of prayer. The second thing in this passage is they, we, we can see God's sovereignty, all right? And this is Acts chapter 15, uh, or Acts, I'm sorry, Acts 1, 15 through 20. And at some point in, those, in, that, in that time where they were gathering together and praying and gathering together and praying and going to the temple and then coming back to pray, at some point during that time, Peter, he, he stood up, Peter assumed the leadership, which is, if you know anything about Peter, that's huge, okay? That, that is huge. Now, Peter... He was always kind of the, at the front of the pack, but he had a tendency of being at the front of the pack and getting himself in a whole lot of trouble. He'd open his mouth and say dumb things or, you know, Peter. Peter. But now Peter is standing up and, and his time with Jesus has marked him as a changed man. So at some point he stands up and he begins to talk to them. There was clearly an elephant in the room. I heard that phrase when I was younger, and I'm going, wait, how in the world did they get an elephant in the room? What, what? Right? There was clearly something that they needed to address. All right? You've ever been in that situation where you walk into a room and the tension's so, so thick you can cut it with a knife? All right? sometimes, sometimes, sometimes you have those experiences. In the midst of all of their joy and all of, all of what was going on as a result of their time with Jesus, they never fully addressed what had happened with Judas. Now remember, Judas was one of the chosen ones. He was one of the 12 apostles. He went in and he came and he did, he saw the miracles. He went out and he did some teaching. He was part of that inner circle that walked with Jesus. But unfortunately, Judas went astray. Judas went, went astray and he ended up with a very tragic ending, right? Judas became the one who led the soldiers to Jesus, that it resulted in him being arrested and betrayed. Jesus, Judas sold him out for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. If you read in the Old Testament, forgive me, I don't have the passage. If you read in the Old Testament, if a slave is killed, you give the owner 30 pieces of silver. That's, what he, that's how much he thought of Jesus. And once he did this, he realized that, that he was guilty of doing this. Unfortunately, though, he never had... He had guilt. He never experienced repentance. He experienced remorse. He was sorry that he did it, as evidenced by him throwing the money back into the temple. But he never experienced. Um, he never experienced any remorse. And if you read through, I'm not going to read through it again. The the Bible. Peter gets really graphic in, in talking about what happened to to Judas. And there's there's all kinds of um, urban legends and things as to what happened to Judas and so on. Um, but Peter stands up and he says, listen, we've got to, we've got to talk about this. We, we, we've, got to, we've got to get this figured out. And in verse, uh, Acts, verse one, Acts 1, verse 20, it says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling become desolate, let no one live in it, and let someone else take his position. Peter stood up and he said, listen, the things that happened, they did not take God by surprise. God ordained what was going to happen to happen. In fact, if we look in the book of Psalms, we can see that David wrote about this. Psalm chapter 69, verse 25 says this, make their fornication or fortification desolate. May no one live in their tents. And Psalm 109, verse eight says, let his days be few. 
let another take his position. Peter looked back into the book of Psalms and he saw that David had prophesied that this was going to happen and that the next set of things that they had to do had been prophesied by David. Psalm chapter 55 tells us in verse 12 through 15, it tells us that Jesus knew that he was going to be, uh, he was going to be betrayed by a very close friend. But here's the unique thing. Psalm 55 was written by David hundreds of years before Jesus showed up. Everything that, in, in, at the end of Luke, um, Jesus is walking along and he said, he t- he's talking to these guys and he points out from the scripture how they all point to him. The Old Testament points its way to Jesus. Jesus knew that, Peter knew that. And so the next steps that they were going to do were in fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. God is sovereign over everything, meaning nothing that takes place, nothing that takes place is a surprise to Jesus. Nothing that takes place is a surprise to God. The decisions that you and I make, guess what? They have already been ordained by God. They have already been planned out by God. Before we were even created, God already had a plan for the things that we are going to do. Y'all know that my favorite verse, I say this a lot, I say this is one of my favorite verses. My absolute favorite verse is Acts chapter 17, verse 26. I'm not going to read it right now. You can look it up. You probably should memorize it. But it tells us that God has ordained the number of days that we're going to have and the boundaries of where we're going to live. The fact that I live here in West Virginia, guess what? It was a surprise to me. It was not a surprise to God. All right? God had already ordained. God had already planned for everything that was going to take place. He's already planned out everything that's going to happen down the road. We just get to go and experience it and see God's hand in the midst of all of that. Now, before I go any further, uh, I've, been, I've been really been struggling with some stuff. I've been, I've been trying to process some things in my head, some, some conversations that I've had with people, talking with, with friends and, and, and things like that. I want to make one more point about Judas that isn't necessarily in the text, but we can see it from his life. Judas Iscariot is in hell, all right? And if you read the passage, you see that it says Judas went to his place. Judas, there was a prophecy that someone was going to betray Jesus. Judas was the one who betrayed him. Now, that does not mean that God made Judas simply to betray Jesus, That wasn't why Judas was created. Judas was created in the image of God. But Judas made the decision to follow through on his his choices. And as a result, the consequence was he died and went to hell. Judas died as a result of a suicide. Committing suicide does not send you to hell. It does not send you to hell. It is a choice that someone made. But here's the point I want to make in regards to Judas. Judas was one of Jesus' best friends. That's why they were having such a difficult time processing this. Judas was one of Jesus' best friends. He did everything with Jesus for three years. He saw the teachings, or he heard the teachings that Jesus did. He saw the miracles. He had long, late-night conversations with Jesus. He saw everything that took place. It's very possible that he even did some of those things himself. The sad reality is Judas was never a believer. And the point that I want to say is there are people in churches all across this county. There are people in churches all across this state and in a beautiful state of Virginia. I'm just going to keep pointing it out. 
All right. There are people in churches all over who have been in church for years who are lost and going to hell. And they come in and they hear the gospel and they make no decisions to believe it. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to go to hell. And there are people who, when they were younger, made a profession of faith. And you know what's going to happen? Sadly, they're going to die and they're going to go to hell. We have people in our families. There are people who have family members who at one point attended church. No longer want anything to do with church. No longer want anything to do with the Bible. But they're holding on to the fact that at one point, they went to church. I hate to tell you this. Now, I'm not, please don't, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I am not saying that going to church, and I'm not saying that reading your Bible makes you a Christian. And I'm not saying that if you don't go to church, or you don't read your Bible, that you're not a Christian. But as you, if you are a Christian, and you, you should be making steps toward sanctification, you should be coming more and more like Jesus Christ every day of your life. And if you are not, if you are not stumbling and falling and trying to get up and continue to take steps toward Jesus, you have a very real chance that you're not a believer. There's a very real possibility that you are not a believer. And I, I, people are probably looking at me going, what in the world is he doing? Why is he saying this? How can he be so hateful and mean? It is not hateful and mean. It is out of love that I am saying this, all right? It is out of love because I know there are people in this room who have family members who have never put their faith and trust in Jesus or who say that they are Christians, but there is no visible fruit whatsoever that they are believers in Jesus. And what's going to happen is this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 16. Now, let me read it to you. It says, You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you lawbreakers. I hope that's sobering. Judas spent three years with Jesus. And you know where he is right now? He's in hell. We have family members, right? We have brothers and sisters and cousins and nephews and nieces who say that they're Christians, but there is no fruit. And I don't want them to end up in that place. I don't want them going through life believing I'm a Christian. I made this profession with, uh, when I'm six, but I am no closer to Jesus today than I was when I was six. If that's the case, you better get on your face and talk to Jesus about whether or not you're a believer. Sorry, I'm getting all worked up here. All right, uh, clearly you can see that this, is, uh, this has been something I've been, been pushing myself through. All right, let's keep, we're going to move on. The next one is following God's plan. Following God's plan. The final thing that we see in this passage 
is that an individual had to take Judas's place. Someone had to take Judas's place. And the reason is, is in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus tells them that the apostles, the 12 apostles are going to sit on the throne and they are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And so they're looking around, they're going, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Uh-oh, Jesus said there were going to be 12 of us. We've got to do something about this. And so what they did was they, they said, all right, here, we're going to set up some guidelines as to who is going to be this person, all right? And the, the scripture tells us, first, it has to be someone who has been with us from the beginning. It has to be a faithful person. It has to be someone who was with us from the beginning all the way until the end. Second thing, it needs to be someone who was a witness, excuse me, has to be a witness to the resurrected Jesus. And the reason being is Acts chapter 1 verse 8 tells them that they're going to be witnesses. They're going to go out and they're going to tell people that Jesus has come back from the dead. And unless that person had experienced in themselves, who was going to believe him? Remember, we, we said that in, in, in a court case, they call eyewitnesses. They don't call secondhand hearsay, that type of thing. Um, and so what they did, they chose two. They chose one, his name was Joseph, uh, called Barsabbas, and Matthias. Both of these men met the requirements. Both of these men were, were individuals who had been with them through all, all of the three years, and they had been part of that uh, five, group of 500 that 1 Corinthians tells us about. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that 500 people saw Jesus. And so what they did was, of course, what they, uh, the apostles do. They came together and they prayed. They had a monumental decision to make. This is, this is a decision that seems kind of arbitrary to us, but it was a huge decision to them because it, um, it had implications for what was going to happen in the next kingdom. So they came together and they prayed. There is no decision that the apostles make in the book of Acts that is not first completely bathed in prayer. When I was growing up, uh, even in college, I would hear people use the phrase, prayed up. Like, I'm prayed up, right? I came in tonight, I prayed up. And, and I used to think that that's a dumb saying. How in the world do you get prayed up? You know what I've learned? If I don't pray, I've learned two things. Number one, I need to pray, all right? I need to pray about the decisions that I make in regards to how I'm going to lead my family. I have to pray about the decisions that I have to, in regards to how I lead my own life. I have to pray about the decisions that I, in regards to how I lead this church, Right. I, I, all of those things. The second thing that I've learned about prayer, I don't do nearly enough. I don't pray nearly enough. And sometimes I think we throw around the phrase, I prayed about it, to say, oh, Lord, help me to make this decision. And then that's, that's what we do. The apostles understood the primacy. I hope I said that word right. How important prayer was in every single decision that they made. And as a church, we have to make certain that we are praying over every decision that we make. Now, we don't have to pray about what kind of staples to buy. We don't have to pray about whether or not to, to paint the walls. Yes, we should paint the walls, just so you know. All right? We don't have to pray about those things like, well, Lord, what color do you want to spray? We don't have to pray about that. But we do have to pray about who is going to lead the church and how are we going to lead the church and what things are we going to do as a church as we reach out into the community. Those are things that we have to pray about. And so after they prayed, they went through a process called casting lots. Right? And the Bible doesn't talk a whole lot about casting lots. It doesn't describe what it was. Um, 
more or less, it, it, was, it was something that in, throughout Scripture, they used it, and clearly God's hand was in it, all right? Whatever it was, they trusted God enough to say that, all right, Lord, whatever happens as a result of this, we know that you're going to take care of it. So they cast lots, and the name Matthias was drawn. So Matthias became the 12th apostle. Now, like I said, it should be noted that in this event, nothing happens without prayer. It would have been easy for the apostles to say, you know what, I like Matthias. He's got a cool haircut, drives a cool car, actually, drives a cool chariot. His, you know, his donkey doesn't smell like uh, Barsabbas's, you know, the judge, that guy over there. Doesn't, it would have been easy for them to say, he, he's a good dude. Let's pick him and go. But instead of doing that, what they did was they fully trusted God to work in that situation. They fully trusted him because, as we saw in the last point, he is sovereign over everything. The decisions that are made are ordained by God. And even when it seemed like they were relying on luck or chance, God's hand was completely in it. And with that, all of the pieces for the birth of the church are ready to go. And that's what we're going to look at next week. The apostles and others that were with them understood the importance of prayer. They knew that nothing could be done without first bathing the situation in prayer. Prayer is so important, people. I, I, cannot, I cannot stress that enough. And it's something that I am working on in my own life and it, to the importance of prayer. When we pray, we align ourselves to God's will. Right? We can't force God to come alongside of us. But when we pray, you know what happens? We come alongside his will. We start to understand what he wants us to do. When we, when we come to understand the purpose, we come to understand the purpose of events in our lives, and we can begin to make sense of the hard times that we go through. But even more importantly than praying alone is praying together. And that's why, that's why when we initiated, when we brought back our Sunday evening service, I have tried so desperately to make that a time of prayer. Right? We come together and we break up into small groups and we pray together. We have a clear example from the apostles right here of that importance. And, and I know you all hear me say, come out for Sunday night, come out for Sunday night. And I'm beginning to, I'm, I'm sure it's starting to fall on deaf ears at some point. But let me stress to you, the time that we spend together praying and the more people that we have join us on Sunday evening for prayer, it's going to enliven this group of people, right? We, we, I talk a whole lot about belonging, thriving, and going, if we truly want to belong to a community, if we truly, truly, truly want to belong to a community of believers, to be a family, we need to pray together. That's what families do. They pray together. And if we truly want to thrive as a Christian body, as the body of Christ, guess what we need to do? We need to pray together. And if we want to have the ability to go out and do amazing things, if we want to go into our community and into the state and into the country and around the world, guess what we have to do? I think you know the answer. We need to pray together. Let me leave you with this last verse. Jeremiah 29, 13 says this. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage of scripture, Lord, and I thank you, 
for the things that we can learn as a result of being in this passage of Scripture, that you are sovereign over everything, that the decisions that we make, we think we're making them on our own, but truly, Lord, you have already ordained them and you've already planned them out. You are sovereign over everything. Nothing takes you by surprise. And when we truly grasp the fact that you are sovereign and that you've already ordained things, when the difficult time comes and the, 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 the prognosis of, of illness comes, we will be able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord, because we know that you are going to be glorified in the midst of that. And Father, I, because of this passage, I hope that the, the importance of prayer, not only in my life, but in the life of the church, that, Lord, we would totally grasp on to what it means to be a people of prayer, that prayer would be a part of our DNA, that we would truly not make any decisions or go forward without first being prayed up. And Lord, not just individually, but we would come together as a corporate body and, and we, would, we would pray together. And when we would leave, we would look forward to the time where we come back to pray together again, that we would continually gather together to pray. And Father, I know that I, I, I spent some time talking about um, folks who, who, who believe that they are going to heaven, but in reality, they may be, may be just as lost as Judas. And Father, if that applies to anybody, whether it's here in this room or somebody watching me via Facebook or somebody in this room has a family member who's in that situation, Lord, help us not to just shrug it off and say, well, you know, what, what can I do? What can I do? But to continually get on our face before you and pray for them and pray that they would get that taken care of. And it, Lord, if there's, if there's someone who isn't sure, is not sure because they're, they're not seeing the growth that they need to, Lord, that they would get that taken care of, that they would get reassurance of their faith, that their salvation would be made sure to them. Father, I pray that... Uh, that today would be a turning point for all of us, that we would uh, go forward, that we would go out in love and share the gospel, not wanting anybody to go to the same place uh, that Judas found himself as a result. Lord, help us to be different. Help us to become a people of prayer. We ask all of this in your beautiful